Thanksgiving 2020 is an unusual affair. Gone are the massive tables groaning with food for armies of people. This year's menu is decidedly minimal. How do you downsize dishes scaled to feed the masses? We're exploring that question this week with some help from Turkey Legs and Terry Robel. From KVBI in Homer, Alaska, my name is Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. vertebrate animal native to North America, kept by various people inhabiting central Mexico as early as 800 BC. It's still an important meat in Mexican cooking, but in the U.S. it's mainly relegated to Thanksgiving dinner, health food, and sandwich filling. Let's put aside the turkey's use in the kitchen for a moment, though, and consider the road not taken. Ben Franklin, upon seeing the design of the Great Seal of the United States centered around a bald eagle, wrote to his daughter, that the bird looked more like a turkey. In fact, he famously claimed the turkey would have been a better choice because the bald eagle is a bird of bad moral character, a poor hunter who lives by pilfering the kills of other better birds and who is easily chased away, even by sparrows. The overblown pomposity of the bald eagle is well known by Alaskans who, when asked by tourists where to see bald eagles, can always truthfully reply, the garbage dump. No self-respecting turkey would allow herself to die in the manner of the 20 Kodiak eagles who drowned in an open dump truck full of fish guts when it backed out of its garage to turn around. 30 more had to be taken to the hospital. The bald eagle, it is true, is a very majestic-looking bird, especially compared to the turkey, whose head is encrusted with all manner of red appendages that look ridiculous at best and perverted at worst. No one writes articles for National Geographic featuring beautifully shot photographs of turkeys in photogenic locations. Bald eagles, though, were the original Instagrammable animal, with tens of thousands of images scattered throughout the world's media of them swooping, staring intently at snow, tearing apart fish, drying their wings, and generally looking awesome, framed by isolated mountain ranges and impossibly distant oceans. 80% of those pictures, as we all know well, were taken at the end of the Homer spit by photographers sitting in their expensed rental cars, engines running, long lenses carefully selecting one of the hundreds of eagles living large on Gene Keene's gravy train for immortality as a symbol of American wildness. The bald eagle's image requires careful construction because the truth of the bird is frankly unimpressive. They will occasionally snatch a slowly moving fish out of the water, but the bulk of their time they spend squabbling with each other over trash or crapping all over radio towers. The turkey, as Ben Franklin noted, might be a little vain and silly, but it's got guts, and guts is enough. They are wily for a bird with excellent eyesight and a keen sense of smell, and most importantly, they are actually useful for feathers, fertilizer, and food. Franklin knew this as well, and many turkeys were electrocuted as part of his experiments in harnessing electricity. He claimed that birds that were killed in this manner were unusually tender. 
Obviously, Thanksgiving is uh, going to be a little more challenging this year, mostly because the solution to Thanksgiving has always been more food. So much of the meal is, in fact, based around gargantuan quantities and lots of people. Now, obviously, that's a terrible idea this year due to our friend COVID-19. In fact, as I am preparing this right now, I am awaiting test results because I was exposed. So it is, it is very real right now. But the show must go on. I'm currently in the process of cutting a turkey leg into its two constituent parts, the thigh and the drumstick. And I have two of these turkey legs and what we're going to be doing with them since any Thanksgiving is going to be very small. We're not doing a whole big turkey. Now, I am personally also a proponent of smaller turkeys anyway, uh, even in regular Thanksgiving years. I tend to get the 12-pound the bird as opposed to the 25-pound bird. Um, I would rather have two of the smaller ones because, A, I think they're better uh, in general. Turkey breast meat is generally not, not the most thrilling of meats. And the giant turkeys have a lot of it. I also typically fry my Thanksgiving turkeys, and uh, you can't fry a turkey that big. Even if you have a fryer that's big enough to do it, by the time the interior of the turkey is at 147, the exterior of the turkey is at gross. But that's not something I have to worry about this year, because no large gatherings. So what I am doing, currently, is I just cut the bone out of the thigh, and now... little stealing. It actually needs to get properly sharpened on the stone, but that's not going to happen right now. So I'll just live with it. Put it on the stone. Maybe we'll do a show where we sharpen knives. Very exciting. So I've cut the bone, the thigh bone, out of the thigh, and I have reserved the entire thigh. And now I am stripping the meat from the drumstick and putting that in a little bowl. Even if we don't have the whole turkey and the ease of that kind of a celebratory roast, we can still have a very celebratory food, just on a smaller scale. So what I'm going to do is make ballotines. And ballotines are part of one of my favorite categories of food, which is stuff stuffed with other stuff. And a ballotine, they're usually made with poultry, although not exclusively, but typically that, that is what you will find them uh, made out of. And the most common form, which is the form that we're making today, is you take the thigh, sometimes the whole leg, but usually a ballantine is just a thigh, and you make essentially a sausage, although it is technically not a sausage, it is a force meat, which is a really terrible translation in English of the French word, which is farce, which is more appropriate, really, but when you say farce in English, people immediately think of comedy. So we're stuck with the <laughs> rather gross-sounding force meat as our translation there. You make a farce, and a farce is simply a ground meat stuffing. And in this case, we'll be making the farce out of the turkey leg meat. And we are going to make a farce. It will have some seasonings, and then we will stuff it inside the boned-out thigh, and roll it all up, tie it up, and cook it that way. This is kind of a nice thing to do with a turkey, with a turkey drumstick, anyway, because as we all know, they have lots of annoying tendons. I love drumsticks. They might be my favorite part of the turkey, but they are sort of a pain to eat. But they're not a pain to eat if you strip all the meat off. 
And it takes a little bit, you know, you got to clear the meat from the tendons. It's, this is the kind of very simple preparation that looks really cool and people think it takes a lot more work than it actually does. It's really not that difficult. It just takes a little time. And a lot of cooking is like that. And these two turkey ballotines, these will, this is good enough for, I think you could pretty easily feed four people because the turkey leg's pretty big. And, you know, you're going to have, we're going to have some other scaled down side dishes as well, which we'll get to in a little bit. But I got two turkey legs here. You know, these are actually two, a couple of slices is actually going to be very satisfying. Ballotines are related to another dish. They're very, very similar to a dish called a galantine. Uh, the main difference is that a galantine is typically a whole animal, and sometimes they can be very large, you know, like some king's dinner or something. They, they could very easily be doing like a whole pig or a whole cow. They are also typically served cold, and they're typically made by poaching and covered in a sauce called chaud froid, which is a, a jellified meat stock that then has typically cream added to it and then coloring so you can have different colors. Chaud froid, it's very festive. They're they're really pretty. They they are also super fussy and they are a pain because you have to your stock has to be made correctly and it's they're a real pain to make. Ballotines though, they're easy. And they're typically served hot, roasted, or you can steam them and then deep fry them, which may be what I'll do with this. You can also braise ballotines. You know, there's multiple ways you can cook them. And one form of galantine that uh, is technically a galantine that you may have heard of is, uh, is the famous turducken. And I have, in fact, made a turducken. And what I can say about the turducken is that it is a lot of fuss for something that's really not that great. <laughs> I, yeah, it's, you know, it's okay, is what I can say about it. It's, it's a novelty. It's fine once. Other than that, I'd rather just have a fried turkey. So you can also, if you felt like it, you know, if you, you could easily make your galantine here with just regular sausage. There is no reason you could not. However, we are going to make it with the turkey itself. Okay, so I finished stripping the meat off of the bones. Now I just have to trim up the, the thigh a little bit as well, because I want it to be pretty flat. That's just going to require that I do a little surgery. I want it to all be about the same, about the same thickness so that it rolls, it rolls evenly. I've got to cut out the kneecap too. The ideal shape here is, you know, as close to kind of rectangular as you can get it. Obviously, you can't get it completely rectangular, but, you know, you trim it up a little bit. You want it to look, in the end, like a neat little roll. You don't really, you don't want bulges. You want it to look nice. I'm making a few incisions here, just to flatten it out. So now I've got the whole thing kind of flattened out, looking pretty nice. It's best to leave a little skin overlapping on the end, not cutting all the way through. We want it to be one piece of meat and one piece of skin. So I got two thighs, deboned, butterflied, laid open, ready for the force meat, the farce. Uh, I'm gonna do a pretty simple uh, filling, nothing terribly complicated. Uh, I got a little ginger and I got a little garlic and I have a lemon. I'm gonna use all that. And the force meat that we're gonna be making, it's gonna need some form of added fat. And typically we would use cream, however, I'm in quarantine, and uh, I was unable to get any cream. <laughs> uh, so what I'm going to use is an alternate, which is going to be egg yolks. So I'm going to put some egg yolks in here, 
And that should make a nice textured force meat. Now I can, I could if I felt like it, go dig out my grinder and grind my meat that way. That's a fine idea, there's nothing wrong with it. But we will do the hand method so I don't have to go dig out my grinder because I'm kind of lazy. And this is a good thing to know if you ever have to do small amounts of hashed meat because that is technically what we're doing here. And this is actually the best way to make uh, steak tartare, by the way. If you ever want to make a proper steak tartare, you should not grind it in the grinder. You should do it this way. I have a knife in each hand. I have cut my, cut all my meat into fairly small chunks and thrown my garlic and my salt and my ginger into the meat. And with these two knives, I hack and hack and hack. And it does give a, a different texture than uh, than a ground than a ground meat. It takes a little bit, so don't forget while you are making your hash, making your farce, to uh, get as many of the uh, tendons out as you possibly can. You'll have a much better texture in the end. So now what I've done is I've taken my farce, spread it out onto my turkey thigh. <laughs> I meant to put the ginger in the force meat and I forgot. Uh, I found it afterwards, but that's okay because when you lay things inside your farce, you get a very nice studded look when you slice into it. So I've spread out my, my farce on top of my turkey thigh and I sliced the ginger into strips. Now I've laid the strips over the top of the farce so now when I roll it all up and cook it and slice it, I'll have a nice little pattern of ginger chunks. It'll look really cool. In these types of dishes, it's really, really common to make what's, what is called a, a garnish. You can have all sorts of things stuffed inside. Some people will do intricate designs, particularly for, for a very festive, like a galantine that's larger scale and is for a really formal occasion. You can, you can get insanely creative with the amount of inlays. Uh, sometimes people will do things like wrap the whole deal in ham, you know, so when you slice into it, then you'll have concentric circles studded with various colors. And you can really let your imagination go wild on this stuff. I'm keeping things fairly simple today. Now, all there is to do is to roll it up. So I got a couple pieces of kitchen twine, which is always a very useful stuff. Should always have some around. It is handy. Just gonna do a couple loops here. Get this tied up. You don't tie it super tight because you don't want to squish everything out of the end. Just nice, easy little package. Try to get the skin to cover as much of the, at least the ends, because you know you're gonna have a nice looking side, and then you're gonna have the seam. So get the nice looking side as nice as you can get it looking. Leave the seam to look however it's gonna look. Part of the reason that uh, the very fancy galantines will be covered in chaud de foie is because if there's any imperfections in the in the the making of the package, you'll cover them up with a thick opaque sauce. But for the galantines, we don't get that luxury. But that's okay. They'll be very attractive and brown. Look really nice. You do have to be a bit careful in this part. It's really easy to sort of smush things around so that they don't look particularly attractive. Be a bit gentle. Another reason that I much prefer farces to, you know, like a bread stuffing or something with these is that they hold up a lot better when you go to slice them. Like a grain stuff, you know, like a bread stuffing or something, it's going to fall apart. 
the slice will fall apart when you when you cut into it. These, the myosin and the meat, will ensure that your inside sticks to the outside, which is what you want. Much more compact. You know, you can serve the entire the entire ballotine, but typically what they'll what you'll do is you'll slice them into rounds and that way you can trim off it's really hard to do these where the the ends aren't a little bit ragged looking which you know if depends on <laughs> this is one of those cooking deals where it sort of depends on the person on the uh, on the occasion really that you're serving for you know if you're doing a very formal plated dinner you would slice off the ragged looking ends get the perfect concentric circles or the perfect circles and uh and plate up those but if it's a less formal occasion you can just serve the whole package warts and all so i have my two ballotines made now they are neatly tied up they are ready to be cooked oh, let me add some salt to the outside there's salt plenty of salt on the inside but i'm gonna give them a little salt on the outside i'm gonna let these chill and dry out a little on the outside in the fridge because it's a little early too i'm not quite ready to cook these but they're ready to go now turn on the oven to 425 for my second small dish for a small thanksgiving which will be sweet potato gnocchi and we'll, we'll make that shortly but first i gotta cook the sweet potatoes which is gonna take a while and I'm gonna roast them at 425 until they're done and then we'll make gnocchi okay I got a couple of completely soft sweet potatoes here that have roasted in the oven I'm gonna make some gnocchi because I love sweet potatoes I'm not a huge lover of the sweet potato casserole you know that's super sweet and all that I mean, it's not terrible, but I'll eat it, definitely, if it's around. I'm not going to say no to it, but I like my sweet potatoes a little less candied. Since we're doing our small Thanksgiving here, we're going to do something a little interesting. We're going to make sweet potato gnocchi. Gnocchi, of course, little dumplings. And we'll come up with some sort of a sauce. Probably do something brown butter based. I'll have to look around. I'll have to check the pantry, see what I've got laying around. I wish I had pecans. If I had some pecans, I would, uh, I, I sort of planned to have pecans, but now that I am isolating while I wait for my test results, I don't have pecans. Anyway, I roasted my sweet potatoes till they're completely soft because the whole goal with gnocchi, potato gnocchi and the other varieties, the real challenge is you don't want them to be tough. And the biggest way that they become tough is by developing too much gluten. And the biggest way that they develop too much gluten is by having too much water, too much moisture content. So if you roast your potatoes or your sweet potatoes, in this case, you're going to be driving off quite a bit of the moisture content. So you're going to start with less, so it's going to be less likely that they're too wet, thus become tough. Don't want our gnocchi to be tough. So I'm peeling them while they're hot and putting all the pulp in a pile. And this particular gnocchi is just going to have two ingredients, sweet potatoes and flour. With flour, the less gluten, the better. Just to, again, make it easier to not have too much and not have your, your gnocchi be tough. So I now have a pile of very soft mashed 
sweet or very soft sweet potato pulp. And I got it sitting on my wooden countertop here. Just gonna, I've got a, uh, got a bench scraper that I'm using here, which is the only real tool that we need. And I'm just gonna chop up my, I'm gonna chop my pulp sort of roughly into a little mass. Make sure any big chunks are broken down. Get it kind of into a something approaching a paste. Now, grabbing my pastry flour. You can use all-purpose too. Um, I just, again, I tend to have bread flour and pastry flour around. What we're gonna do now is just add flour until we have uh, gotten the consistency of gnocchi that we want. This is one of those recipes where you, there, it's hard to say exactly what you're gonna, how much you're gonna wind up using. Because you don't know exactly the moisture content in the sweet potatoes, and that controls how much flour it takes to get your dumplings to the proper consistency. So all I'm doing is I sprinkle the flour across the top of the sweet potatoes, and I chop it in with my dough scraper. And again, the reason that we do this is if we mash it in, if we mix it, we are much more likely to, again, develop large quantities of gluten, which we don't want. So rather than stirring and mixing and folding and kneading, we will do a little bit of that at the end, but at the beginning, in order to minimize the working, we just cut the flour in. And once the flour is completely cut in, then you get, then you can judge whether you need to add more flour. In this case, obviously I'm gonna to need to add more flour because it's only the first one. And I'm adding little quarter cups at a time. And the way that you can tell that you need to add more flour is because the dough is still very, very sticky and uh, very wet. And it hasn't changed much from its original consistency. So here we go, cutting in the second quarter cup of flour. And as you add more flour, generally I'll, I'll add less of it at a time because the closer you get, the less flour you usually need to add. And I can already see we're starting to get something vaguely approaching a gnocchi consistency. We want dumplings that hold together in the poaching water that don't just fall apart, which is what happens when you don't use enough flour is they just sort of blow out. When you eat them, the very gentlest pressure on your tongue sends them, just, they just dissolve. All right, so, yeah, I definitely need quite a bit more, I think. So I'll do about an eighth of a cup here. Let's see where we're at. Pretty wet, although we're getting closer. Definitely see the dough does start to gather up a little more, but when you press it now, it's still, there's still not a lot of structure to it. So a little bit more flour, I think is what this is gonna take. So let's give it another eighth of a cup, roughly. Chop, chop. Yeah, this is starting to get there. As we start to get closer to 
to our final structure. Begin to very gently knead, very, very gently. I think this is, oh, I feel like it needs just a bit more. It needs just a little bit more flour. So I'm gonna add another eighth of a cup. I feel this will make a gnocchi that is sturdy enough to stand up to the poaching, yet yielding enough dissolve on your tongue. Because you, you really, you don't want to chew gnocchi too much. The exquisite pleasure of gnocchi comes from being soft. And now, yeah, it's definitely starting to look a little bit like uncooked bread dough now, which is, you can, you can see now that there's a little bit of a structure to the, to the dough when you cut into it and look at it. It doesn't look like a massive sweet potato anymore. It is definitely transformed into a dough. So now I'm going to give it just a gentle, gentle, light, light knead just for a minute because we do want to develop a little bit of gluten. We don't want it to be completely structureless. We just don't want to work it real hard. And I can see now it's got, it's a little bit tacky on the surface, but it's, it's not wet anymore. It's still kind of warm because you want to do this hot. So now I have a compact little ball of dough and I'm going to let this rest for at least an hour. At this point, you can, you can let it rest for uh, quite a while actually. And that'll just relax everything, get the dough hydrated um, and give it, give it a little time to, to set up some. And when we chill it, it'll make it a little easier to, to work as well. So I got a nice little log. I'm just gonna wrap that in some plastic wrap and put it in the fridge for about an hour. But I'm just gonna let this go for a little bit and uh, I will return and we can finish. We can roll and shape and poach our gnocchi. Super exciting, I love gnocchi. <laughs> I really should make it more because it's really simple to make um, and it's delicious. All right, it's about an hour later. Got my gnocchi dough. Ready to go on my second batch of shaping. It's got a nice texture, although you never quite know. There's always a moment when you drop it in the simmering water where you kind of go, are they going to hold together? Sometimes they don't. And if they don't, then you got no choice but to add a little more flour. But these feel pretty good, so they got a nice solidity to them. I think they're going to be okay. You just roll them out into a rope of about three quarters of an inch thick, cut them into dumplings of whatever size and I have a little gnocchi board which I like a lot better than the fork. It's a lot faster, it looks nicer and you turn them at an angle is the way to get the shape right which it took me a very long, it took me longer than I care to admit to figure that out. I was not taught how to make gnocchi by anybody in particular. It took me a while to figure out how to get the shape right. You just turn your little chunk you don't have to make the little indentation with the lines, but it, it is really cool looking and it's traditional. So you can just, but you can if you want to, just uh, whack them into chunks and drop them in as regular dumplings. But come on, it's Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving. You can at least make things a little nice. And I got some water with some turkey stock that I made from my bones from the turkey. Simmering here, or about to simmer. I'm gonna simmer these gnocchi. And then, then they will be done and I will, I can either freeze all or some of them for future use, which I probably will because this actually made quite a bit of gnocchi. So I'll saute the rest of it, which is coming up. I also have some water 
boiling that I'm going to put in my wok so that I can steam my ballotines. I'm going to steam them, then I'm going to fry them, which will give me a nice, perfectly cooked interior. A little bit of a brown, crispy exterior. So I'm going to grab my bamboo steamer here. I think I'll probably need both layers. I don't think they're both going to fit in one layer. Let me look. Nope. My steamer's not especially large. Okay, there's that one. Get the wok. Pour my hot water into the wok. Get that going. Go ahead and get these turkeys steaming first. So, yep, each each level of my steamer will take one ballotine. There we go. Those guys. We'll check those in a half hour or so, but I imagine it'll be a good solid half hour, 45 minutes of steaming. Maybe a little longer. So that's going. Now, just gotta do my, my spider out. Now I'm ready. Simmering beautifully. I'm gonna do a tester just to make sure that they don't explode. Which is certainly a possibility. It does happen. Drop one in. And they're basically ready when they float. Which usually does not take that long. Seems to be holding together very nicely. Yeah, I think we're gonna be good here. We're gonna have a successful gnocchi batch. Which is good, because I hate failure. There we go. Got the gnocchi floating. Give it just a couple more, a little bit more to make sure. But yes, held its shape perfectly. And again, that was two, you know, sort of average sized sweet potatoes with just a little bit under one cup of flour. But again, you can't really very easily, just because the amount of moisture is always going to be a little different. There's no way to be exact. Now, some people may notice I didn't put any eggs in my gnocchi. I typically don't make mine with eggs. Um, eggs do make it, they make them tighter. They'll give them a little bit of a yellow cast, but they can also be a bit tough. They're definitely a little tougher than non-egg gnocchi, but some people like them more. You know, they've got a little bit of a richer flavor. So if you if you like putting eggs in your gnocchi, then put one or, one or two or however many in at the beginning and judge the flour off of that. Make a little batch here. Sample my one that's done. Mm. Oh yeah, Ooh, that's good. Mm. 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 Very easy to eat. Slight stickiness from the sweet potato. Sweet potato gnocchi is always a little more, a little denser than uh, regular potato gnocchi, I find. It's a slightly different texture. So don't expect it to be quite as pillowy and fluffy as a good, as a good potato gnocchi. This is always gonna be slightly denser. But, it's got awesome sweet potato flavor. So I'm just gonna cook all of these. I'm gonna poach all these right now. The next thing you hear from me will be sauteing them and finalizing this whole shebang. So I got my wok full of hot oil. Gently. These, uh, you know, they are, there is a little bit of moisture on the outside of them, so they will bubble a little at the beginning. So we'll try to be a little careful here. There we go. Out of the steamer basket into the frying pan, and we're just going to let those brown on the outside. And then I got to make my gnocchi. And I cooked the turkey to uh, about 150, which is a good, a good number. They're still warm all the way through, so we're just uh, we're just getting the outside a little crispy. Generous pat of butter. 
I froze about half of my gnocchi for future use. Freeze them on a single layer on, on a sheet pan or a plate or whatever. Freeze them in a single layer so they don't all stick together. And then uh, after they're frozen, you can put them in a Ziploc or something. Turkeys, just about there. I got a ladle. I've got the skin side. I started them with the skin side down. I got the skin side on top now so that there's any moisture in the skin. It'll easily evaporate away. And I'm just kind of swirling some of the hot oil over the top of the skin so it'll get some nice sort of lacquered. I'm ladling it with a ladle. So it gets a nice crispy brown lacquered outer skin layer. You only want to do this immediately after you steam them. You don't want to chill them overnight because otherwise they're not going to be in the oil long enough to really cook very much. If you chill them overnight, <laughs> the interior will still be cold and nobody wants that. Butter is nicely browned. Keep that skillet moving at the beginning. Gnocchi. As long as you use enough butter, it shouldn't stick. Good idea to help it out at the beginning. Turkey is starting to have a beautiful golden brown look. The skin is starting to puff up a little. I imagine it would be nicely crispy. And now that my gnocchi has got a little color to it, I'm gonna brown the outside of them a little bit. And I haven't untied the strings on the turkey either. I'll do that when I'm done. You can do it because technically they should hold together in the fryer after they're steamed. The meat proteins should bind together, but I like to wear pants and suspenders and stuff like this. Lovely amount of brown butter. Nice color on the gnocchi. So I just squirted in a little bit of mustard. Whirl that around a little. And finally, finally, a little bit of lemon juice into the sauce, smooth it out a little. I wish I had a little cream, but I don't. How it goes. And pull the turkey, the beautiful browned turkey out of the wok of sizzling fat. And I've got two of my courses complete. For our last trick here, we're gonna smallify the legendary green bean casserole. Some people think they're too cool for the green bean casserole. I personally, I really, I enjoy the green bean casserole, but not so much these days in its sort of classic recipe form. Cream of mushroom soup, canned green beans. I mean, the canned fried onions are actually awesome. Those are really the best part for me. Like that's my favorite part. If honestly, if somebody could give me just a pile of the fried canned onions and and I'd be pretty happy with that. You know, it's not that it's bad, it's good, it's just a little one-dimensional. But the flavors themselves are all things that work really well together. So many years ago, you know, I've, when I was learning how to cook, I said about improving green bean casserole, and it turns out that basically the improvements to green bean casserole scale down really easily. Especially for a situation like this, where, you know, you're only gonna be serving two to four people, tops. You know, maybe six at the outset. And the first thing I'm gonna do and really the only part that's a lot of work. I've actually already, I've done one part of it already, which is to make the fried onions. I just did that while I had my deep fryer going for my turkey. For my turkey ballotines, throw an onion on a mandolin, a little salt, a little cornstarch, let the onions 
some of the moisture come out of the onions and then let cornstarch soak it up so you get some nice dry exterior for your onions. Throw it in the deep fryer long enough to get nice and brown and crispy, you're good to go. So that's really easy. And then for the green beans, all you gotta do is trim them up, trim the ends, and blanch them. And they are ready to go. So really, the only part of this whole ordeal of making the improved casserole is making the sub for the, <laughs> for the cream of mushroom soup, which is, of course, obviously gonna be a, a mushroom bechamel. I don't know if there's a name in the brigade system. I could probably go look in my LaRousse Gastronomique and see what a mushroom bechamel sauce is called. But I'm not gonna do that because I don't care because I don't work in a fr French restaurant with a brigade system where the chef is gonna go sauce blah blah and expect me to know that it's a mushroom bechamel. So I really don't care. Because the cream of mushroom soup is basically a canned version of a bechamel. And this is, this whole casserole really, <laughs> it does kind of have its roots actually in an old French way of serving vegetables, which was to basically blanch them and then enrobe them in a, usually a bechamel, occasionally a velite, but usually a bechamel, and then run them under a broiler and brown the top of them. And, I mean, that's like, there's hundreds of vegetable recipes in old French cookbooks that are that. The green bean casserole version just takes already kind of mushy canned green beans and already made one-dimensional cream of mushroom soup, a.k.a. Uh, sort of a quasi-bechamel, and cooks them for longer. <laughs> Not ideal, but there's there's the kernel of an excellent idea in there. So that's what we're that's what we're doing, is we're stripping this stripping this classic recipe, which again, I will say, I'm always gonna have a big helping of this stuff at Thanksgiving. Mostly, again, because of the onions. But we're gonna strip that recipe back and make it into something really delicious and also something that is easier to scale than, you know, something that you gotta make in a nine by 13 Pyrex uh, casserole pan. And what I'm doing right now, you may hear it and you'll be like, oh, that's simmering, that's water simmering, and you're right. But what I'm actually doing is sauteing these mushrooms. Yes, I have taken uh, mushrooms, sliced mushrooms, uh, half shiitake that I just, that were dried and that I soaked uh, for about 45 minutes in hot water, and half plain old cremini mushrooms. And I've plopped them into a skillet and poured boiling water on the top of them. Some half half boiling water and half uh, water half the soaking water from the from the shiitakes, and now they are sitting in here, simmering away in this water. And I am calling this sautéed mushrooms. And you guys probably think that I'm nuts, but I promise you, this works really well. I thought that when I first heard about it, I thought it was nuts, and it turns out that it's not nuts, and it's a fairly recent technique. I mean, it's probably it might be one of those techniques that a few people sort of knew about, but it wasn't very popular. It works better, faster, and more evenly and more reliably than starting mushrooms in a hot pan with butter, which is the way that I learned how to do it, which is the way that I've done it at every place where I've ever sauteed mushrooms. I thought it was, I mean, everybody, that's just how it was done. Anyway, there's this, this new method, and all you do is you chop your, slice your mushrooms, chop your mushrooms, however, however you want to do them, and pour in hot water, crank it up, and let it simmer until the water pretty much cooks away. And then, at the end of it, you throw in some fat and brown the mushrooms. And totally counterintuitive, but it 100% works. And the reason it works, the people who know best assure me, is, uh, and particularly I think the guy that made this famous, although I can't remember if I actually learned it from his blog, there's a guy named Dave Arnold, who's a <laughs> who's an interesting dude. I'll just leave it at that. He's got a podcast called Cooking Issues and a blog of the same name, and he's uh, kind of a maniacal genius. 
And I, I think he was the first one to sort of popularize this, but I don't think that's where I read it the first time. I, I Honestly, I don't remember where I read it the first time, even though it was probably less than a year ago. But he was sort of the one that brought it to everybody's attention. And what basically is happening is that the water, the cooking medium of the water, the is, is drawing out, is fully cooking the cells of the mushrooms much more thoroughly and much quicker than a than sautéing them because i mean we've all we've all cooked mushrooms and you know sautéed mushrooms and they release a ton of water and it turns out that if you if you start them in the boiling water instead of in the hot fat they will actually release their their water quicker they will cook through more thoroughly and have a texture that's more similar to a roasted mushroom and then at the end once the water is cooked away they will brown faster even if they're a little crowded in the skillet so it's kind of hitting multiple different notes at once and it's a really like i say it totally works to a to a degree that really shocked me i i I literally tried it one time because i was like there's no way this is going to work and it worked and i was like oh my god this is fantastic this is like revolutionizing mushroom cooking for me. And previously, the way that I always did it was roasting them uh, beforehand and then sauteing them afterwards. But it turns out this is easier. You don't have to fool around with roasting them. And the texture is very, very similar. So I highly recommend it. Did I mention it's faster? You don't add a ton of water, just kind of enough to come up partway up the sides of the mushrooms. And, uh, and you cook it pretty hot and they will rather rapidly cook away their water. And then it also, you know, it's leaching out some of those mushroom uh, flavors as well. So then you get an even sort of richer and darker fall at the bottom that when you add the butter, everything browns and you get this really amazing, deep, deep, rich mushroom flavor. It's, it's fantastic. I don't, I don't saute mushrooms any other way now. Just about there, start to see patches of the bottom when I slide the water around. And it works with dried mushrooms, it works with fresh mushrooms. Again, completely counterintuitive. And after these mushrooms are done, there's really, the rest of it is as simple as making a bechamel, which we've I've made on the show before, which is literally nothing, nothing more than a roux with milk and some nutmeg. And in this case, I am going to add a li- part of the liquid will be uh, mushroom water. I'm going to pull these mushrooms out of the pan once they finish sauteing and use the leftover butter that's in there, and I'll add some more butter, too, to start my be- my bechamel, to start my roux. And bechamel roux are so easy. Five minutes of stirring some flour around, slowly add the milk, and once it gets to the consistency that you're looking for, you're done. You know, scrape a little nutmeg in there, add a little salt or pepper, whatever it takes to make it taste good. Add some of the flavorings, you know, from the big long list in Escoffier or, or whatever. You can, you can flavor it with anything you want. In fact, what I probably will do, probably add a little miso to my bechamel. So the heat always stays pretty high. The pan's pretty hot. I have already salted these mushrooms some, so I'm not going to add any salt right now. Because I, I added some at the beginning. But they are now, they look, they look roasted, you know, is what they look like. I'm just going to. I'm just gonna say it. <laughs> they look like roasted mushrooms that haven't really browned yet. And the flavor, they have a meaty, like it really emphasizes the meatiness of them. We've driven out pretty much all of the free water. And so the only water that's left is the water that's like part of the structure of the mushroom. So they are totally prepared to brown. The surfaces are starting to get dry. Bottom of the pan is just about completely dry. I'm gonna get them good and dry before I add the butter. 
I'm gonna add more butter, but I'm gonna start out with just four tablespoons or so, half stick, because some of it will get absorbed by the mushrooms. I mean, for real, you could actually just take these sauteed mushrooms and throw them, toss them with some green beans, maybe shoot a little lemon juice in them to make a warm butter vinaigrette, throw some crispy onions on top, and I mean, I wouldn't complain. <laughs> I would not say no to that. But it's Thanksgiving and somebody would complain because that is not even remotely close to green bean casserole. Look at these mushrooms. Oh man, these look good. Starting to develop a little color. I find that in this method they color a lot more evenly than they do when you just cook them raw in the in the oil. When you do it that way, when you do it without pre-cooking them in the water first, then they they tend to have kind of uneven coloration. Some some will be a lot darker than others, um, and some will be a little raw tasting in the middle. Whereas this, they just all wind up with this really nice brown, slightly crispy flavor on the outside. Love it. We've talked about this on the show before, but one of the reasons that bechamel is the sauce of choice for a dish like this that is gonna go under the broiler is because it'll brown, which a cream-based sauce will not, unless there's a roux involved. Only sauces that have roux will brown under the broiler. And the bechamel browns better than any of them because it's got milk solids too that'll get nice and brown. Along with the starch in the flour. And the starch is what binds the whole thing together so it doesn't break under the intense heat of the broiler. You know, a cream sauce will, sooner or later, under super high heat will curdle. And that is not what you want, unless it is. There are a few dishes that do take advantage of milk curdling. There's, a, there's an Italian uh, pork dish that's braised in milk and the, the reason that you braise it in milk is so that the milk breaks and curdles and makes kind of a cottage cheese that goes alongside the, the pork, becomes really caramelized and delicious. Typically, curdling is something you want to avoid in uh, milk cookery. So the way to avoid it is to make a bechamel. Beautiful. Oh, they're getting so lovely. And then I, the other nice thing is that now this this butter, it, the base butter, uh, I'm gonna have to add a little bit more. I have to add a little fresh butter after I pull these mushrooms out. Is gonna have a fantastic mushroom depth of flavor that will just sit right at the bottom of this cream of mushroom soup. Now, those of you who might be paying attention might realize that if you just skip the bechamel phase and add cream to this, you will basically have the greatest cream of mushroom soup that you've ever had. So this is this is two dishes in one. You can, you know, some people with their cream soups will make a, will start with a bechamel first, but I personally do not care for bechamel-based soups. They're almost always a little too gloopy for me, uh, unless you're really, really judicious with the with the bechamel. I tend to like soups based on reduced cream instead, although those can be thinner than a lot of people prefer. Different strokes. Here we go, we're really starting to get there now. Yeah. Oh, this is magnificent. If only, only you could convert smell into electrical impulses, and then into ones and zeros, and then deconvert it on the other side. So if there's any genius, electrical engineers out there, or computer scientists. Get working on it. 
Um, so did you make your green bean casserole? I did make my green bean casserole, yeah, because we're still in quarantine until Tuesday. Okay. I mean, so you're like not going anywhere, really? Not where people are, no. We're like taking the dog to the beach and that's about it. Wow. But it's. But uh, you feel fine. Yeah, we're fine. We tested negative on uh, on Tuesday, but we're following all the all the guidelines for two weeks since your last contact with a confirmed positive. So. Okay. Well, I'm glad you guys are doing okay, and you only have a few more days, right? Yeah, just till Tuesday, and then we're done, and okay. then it's back to good deal. Back to the usual. <laughs> this is just crazy. Yeah. So what are what exactly what are your Thanksgiving plans anyway? <laughs> well. well Oh, <laughs> it, it, they're pretty concrete at this point. And, and I'm sure we're kind of the Anchorage family are going to come down, but they'll be just the six of us at the table. Yeah, that's a small number, you know, for most Thanksgivings. <laughs> oh, for you and I, it's very small. Yeah. And, and, you know, I traditionally like to have the f- people in our life that, you know, don't necessarily have family or good friends. And, um, you know, we pick up one or two stragglers along the way. And well, <laughs> well, I was gonna so say, sometimes it's as many as 20. Yeah. Especially in a place like here where so many people, you know, so many of us are from somewhere else and it's a long way to go. Absolutely. Thanksgivings have always been mostly a lot less like family and a lot more like your friends, you know, and that's like, really, oh, yeah. and that's really kind of out the window now. I know, I know, and it's just, it's my favorite cooking holiday. It's a no-brainer for me. I've been doing it for 42 years now. I try to do different things occasionally, and they get shot down. You, you stick with the tradition, and it's comfortable and expected, and it's just the comfort food you want on that day, and what, um, you know, everybody's got a little different idea of what, their comfort food is, I think, depending on what part of the country you're from or what traditions you've brought to the table, so to speak, in the past, you know? Yeah, well, that that was kind of the challenge in doing this show was, was trying to figure out how to, because at this point, it's going to be me and my wife and pretty much nobody else. So, you know, we're not going to obviously, uh-huh. we're not going to make a whole turkey. So... You know, what do you, what else can you do with a turkey? Well, that's why I did the, the Ballantines where I boned out the thighs and chopped up all the, all the drumstick meat and stuffed it all inside. And that, I mean, that's great for two people. And then the sweet potato gnocchi was the other thing that I made. And that was, you know, cause you don't want to make a whole big sweet potato casserole and all that for two people. So, you know, some gnocchi is great. And then the green bean casserole was, that was really easy. But then you had... And this is this is one of the great dishes, even even in a regular Thanksgiving, because you were like, uh, you should do stuffing stuffing muffins. Boy, yours sounds great, but you know, in our house, even if it was just the two of us, we would just do the traditional stuff because that's what we both expect and want and look forward to all year. But can you can you will, will you tell me about the stuffing muffins because they sound they sound really good. Okay, so basically, um, basically, you take whatever goodies you like to make your stuffing or dressing with and um, make them in a little muffin tin. You grease your muffin tin and they take like 20 minutes because essentially everything is pretty much cooked in your dressing when you're done mixing it up. I mean, most some years I put in sausage, I brown sausage and add it. Tell me, walk me through your stuffing. 
Okay. Um, so my stuffing, and you know, sometimes it varies year to year, but pretty much the basic Roble stuffing is I get a bread that I like, um, usually a nice rustic white, maybe um, a little sourdough, and I cut it into cubes and I dry it in the oven just to give it, you know, let it get dry and a little crunchy. And so that's the basis of the the stuffing. So I'll take butter and melt it and I'll add to the melted butter in the saute pan diced celery, diced onion, salt pepper. Um, right at the end, I'll throw in a few pieces of diced apple, not a real sweet one. That's the goodies that I'll put onto the, the bread cubes. I usually make turkey broth ahead of time with the turkey necks and parts. So it has a little more flavor than the store-bought chicken. But if store-bought chicken is what you got, go with it. Um, And then salt, pepper, a lot of poultry seasoning or the ingredients of poultry seasoning, the the spice ingredients of marjoram and rosemary and thyme and and sage. Quite a bit of that goes into the stuffing. Um, I'll mix up an egg or two depending on the quantity of the bread, that gets gently folded in. And then just kind of, I taste it, I'll taste a little bit. And I think my big thing with stuffing, because it's one of my favorite things, my mom made amazing stuffing, is to have enough seasoning in it. I love it heavily seasoned with the poultry seasoning flavors of the sage and such, and make sure it has enough salt. That's pretty much it. I mix it up good. And it goes into a dish. And in this case, we would grease our little muffin tins, fill it in with maybe a cookie scoop or a big old spoon, and you bake it on like 325, 350 for however, 20 minutes. And there you have little portion control stuffing. You know, we've uh, <laughs> my favorite way of doing turkeys is, is deep frying them. And uh, we, discovered, <sighs> we discovered several years back that you can take the stuffing muffin and uh, even elevate it beyond its already <gasps> awesomeness if you roll it in panko and uh, oh my gosh, throw it in the deep fryer. <laughs> that sounds like something you would um, have a special booth for <laughs> at the fair. And then, <laughs> and then we actually made it even better than that one year because I made the gravy ahead of time and I froze mm-hmm. it and I, I froze the gravy in ice cube trays. And okay. Then, and then I put the gravy, the frozen ice cube of gravy, in the middle of the stuffing mixture. And then we rolled it in panko and deep fried it. And so when you cut it open, all the gravy oozed out and it was. Oh, oh, that sounds wonderful. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It was really good. I love it that you experiment like that. That sounds fabulous. Sometimes I put like some fresh cranberries in the stuffing. Sometimes I put some toasted nuts in for a little textural, you know, difference. Nice. Doesn't it seem like everything at the table from the traditional Midwest Thanksgiving meal is brown and squishy. I don't know anything about the Midwest Thanksgiving meal because we always had, we never had, we never did regular bread stuffing. Ours was always cornbread. Yeah. Um, my mom's is, my mom's, I learned this from my mom and hers always has a pretty generous portion of cayenne. Um, there's Ooh. always, there's always a little bit of a tickle when you, when you eat a really good <gasps> cornbread dressing, at least, okay. in, at least in South Louisiana. And so I, I still do that. It's not like hot, you know, you're not eating mm-hmm. like hot but peppers or anything. It's, but. it's got a little zip to it. Yep. Yep. Oh, good. Um, and we have some awesome moose 
breakfast sausage this year again that, you know, the basis of the breakfast seasoning mix is a lot of those, um, you know, uh, sagey spices and whatnot. And, and I would usually put some of that in. Did your mom put um, sausage in it? No, we, I mean, some people did put sausage in their, in their cornbread dressing, but we never did. Uh-huh. Some people also put uh-huh. oysters in theirs and we never really did yeah. that either. Yeah, I think that's, that's a waste of oysters. But personally, I'm not an oyster girl, even though I truly wished I were. <laughs> and I love them sometimes cooked a little bit because we have the most beautiful oysters in the world here. That's true. And I know it and I've ate them and I have my obligatory one raw oyster every year just because <laughs> someday maybe I'll wake up and go, oh my gosh, I have to swallow a dozen of these. Well, you know, <laughs> we're all, we all have our, we all have our own culinary blind spots. I hate olives. So people think that's Oh, weird. I love olives. <laughs> <gasps> Oh, I think that's weird too that people. But my uh, my grandpa never liked olives or mushrooms. So I saw this all these cute little things on the internet, like make little individual pies and things. You know, actually, it was funny and, because I was thinking about I was thinking about the dessert because I was like, should I do dessert for this show? And honestly, like, no. You know, just make a friggin' no. pecan pie. <laughs> yeah, eat the, make pecan the whole pie. thing. Eat it over the whole. Even eat it over the next few days. Whatever. Don't don't yeah. small format your dessert. Everything else Absolutely. you can make smaller. But dessert, nah. <laughs> no, and and that was the the two requests that I had: pumpkin pie, pecan pie. No, <laughs> don't small. Don't don't downsize dessert. <laughs> 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 Jack the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. Today's guest was Terry Roble. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10 Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebane. This is the third episode of the fall 2020 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this. Thank you.